we're moving right along. Uh, may not feel like it, but we are. And uh, we're excited about uh, just continuing our way through. Just a little preview as we look at our calendar as well. We are going to hit a strategic pause button through the month of December as we kind of uh, have an opportunity to observe an Advent uh, type of approach. Um, Dave, myself, and Andy will be preaching through four different sermons through the month of December, focusing on, on his Christ, his person, and his work, ultimately going to the cross and providing salvation for us. It'll be a great series. Um, if you've got friends, neighbors, coworkers that you may be building relationships with, December, Christmas, it's that time of year where people might be willing to uh, join you for a, a church service. And so be mindful of that as you're interacting with others as well. But Genesis 14, our title of our message this morning is God's Sovereignty in the Chaos. God's Sovereignty in the Chaos. And again, if, I feel like I've, I've given a similar intro a couple times, but if you're like me, I, I came to chapter 14, and at first glance, again, it's just a little bit of a head-scratcher. You know, man, what, what, do, you, what do you do with this here, right? Um, just a bunch of nations warring. Um, a lot of stuff going on with difficult names to pronounce. Man, Eric, uh, that was a blessing, right? And, and so it's just sometimes difficult when you come to some of these Old Testament passages and you're going through some, some of the more historicity of some background and some nations and this happened here and then you came over. It's, it can be difficult and somewhat um, laborious to work through. And so um, I want to remind you, just by way of introduction, that when we come to these passages, certainly when we preach, but also when you read, um, don't be intimidated by, by some of these passages. There's a way through them. There's, there's a way that you can navigate through some of these difficult passages and, and be blessed and learn um, from Scripture as a result of, as opposed to just uh, skipping over that and, and getting to the next thing. Um, so if you're like me, I want to remind us of how you should and how I should as I'm just reading through Genesis. And I hope you are looking forward. You're reading ahead in these passages and seeing where we're going in Genesis. But as you come to a passage like this, hit, hit the pause button, call a time out, and just pray for understanding. And we're going to do that in just a moment uh, for my own benefit and, and for yours as well. But just stop and pray for understanding. And then you'll remember I also called you to consider and understand the context. We, we know what's, what's happened. Andy reminded us of some of the things that were going on between Abram and Lot in chapter number 13. That helps us, again, in understanding what's going on here in chapter 14. Number three, I think, is really important. Just ask some very simple and basic questions. What do I, what do I learn about God in this passage? What do I learn about mankind? What do I learn about myself and my relationship with God in this passage. And even in a unique text of Scripture just like this, we can answer some of these questions. And we can find some unique things about who God is, how He operates in this world, and as a result, what it means for my relationship with Him. And then that next one was study and discuss together. I hope you're enjoying the A&I times. That's really what that is. It's a little glimpse into studying and discussing together as we have an opportunity to just talk through some of these details of Scripture, what it means for me. Hey, I got a question. I didn't really understand that point. We can back up and try to hit it again and help you understand. Studying God's Word together can be a big help in your overall understanding of Scripture. And then finally, you can consult a good, readable, and reliable commentary. I've listed those things before, but I thought again as I've was struggling myself and where to go at first glance. I thought it might be helpful for us to do those things ourselves. So let's open in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God. You alone can rescue. You are the Lord of, of my salvation. Uh, these, these songs that just ministered to my heart this morning, I pray now will we'll pave the way for us to receive, to hear your word from a heart that is a fertile soil, that is tilled up and just ready to receive your word. I pray that you would guard us from hardness of heart, that the word of God this morning wouldn't be snatched up by the cares of this world or anything else that might be on our minds. But right now in this moment, as we represent the gathered church, your body, your bride, I pray that you alone would be glorified, you alone would be magnified, not just 
in the proclamation of your word through preaching, but in our hearing, in our listening, and in our responding. Father, I pray that in these few short moments, as we have an opportunity to dive into Genesis 14 and just gaze fully and clearly into your goodness, into your providential plan and your sovereignty, I pray that we would find comfort, that we would find solace, we would find hope in the midst of our own circumstances that may be weighing difficult on our heart as we came into worship this morning. So this morning, Father, we acknowledge, we confess that we need you. We have nothing to offer you. We have nothing to give you. But Father, we offer our lives this morning. I pray that you would be glorified in it. Do a work that I cannot do. We ask these things in your precious name, I pray. Amen. God's sovereignty in the chaos. Chaos is a strong word. I, I'll be honest, I chose it intentionally. Um, by way of my introduction, you got a glimpse into a little bit of my mindset. As I read through this text, I'm thinking, wow, there's, there's a lot going on here. What's the definition of chaos? Chaos just means complete disorder and confusion. Complete disorder and confusion. As we look at this chapter, there's probably, in my opinion, not a better word to describe it than just that, chaos. There's oppressive authority, there's rebellion, there's war, there's regional power struggles, there's genocide, there's pillaging, there's people even falling into tar pits. I mean, there's just, there's just chaos at, at every turn in this chapter here. At a global level, the world that we live in today, as Andy even uh, spoke to in his introduction of a couple songs, the world that we live in today doesn't sound really too different from Genesis chapter number 14, if we really look at it. Oppressive authority, rebellion, war, regional power struggles, yes, even, sadly, genocide, pillaging via taxation and other means, these chaotic circumstances that are present here in Genesis 14 in our own way, we can resonate with. But beyond a, a national and even a global level, we certainly can look out and say, yeah, this world still has a lot of chaos going on. We feel it. We see it in the headlines of our current news every single day. But I wonder on a more personal level, at a local level, have you ever felt the chaos weighing heavy in your own life? Things around you and even things happening to you seem to be spiraling out of control. What am I to do in these moments? Where am I to turn? Who am I to trust in these sometimes long seasons of chaos? Have you ever been there? Feeling lost. Feeling hopeless, feeling uncertain, feeling maybe a little uncertain of what you thought to be true, but now there's an element of, of doubt. There's now a question mark that's cast on what you thought was a firm foundation. But because of those chaotic circumstances that just don't seem to be going away, you're struggling. I think this morning as we look into Genesis 14, we can anchor our heart, we can anchor our life, we can anchor our hope on the character of God as it is present clearly here in Genesis chapter number 14. So as Andy indicated this morning, we're going to use the term, the theological term of the sovereignty of God often this morning. So before we just dive into our text and, and work through it, I want to make sure we're on the same page of understanding this term God's sovereignty. R.C. Sproul has defined the sovereignty of God as I was digging through verse after verse and other portions of Scripture and looking at definitions. I really anchored down on, on his definition as it, as it really spoke to me. R.C. Sproul defines it this way. The sovereignty of God is the free exercise of his supreme authority in executing and administering his eternal 
purposes. Let me read that definition one more time if you're attempting to jot it down. It is the free exercise of His supreme authority in executing and administrating His eternal purposes. So the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, friends, there's a lot of foundational character traits and doctrines to understanding God. But in my opinion, there's probably not one that is more important than understanding the sovereignty of God as it shapes our understanding of God Himself. I mean, at the core, if God is not sovereign, He ceases to be what? He ceases to be God Himself. So if the God we serve today truly created all things, and He did as we observed in the early chapters of Genesis, then he has the authority and the right over that creation to exercise his eternal plans within that creation. So the sovereignty of God is absolutely pivotal for us to understand as we attempt by his grace to relate to him rightly as creator and creation. As a result, you and I, can rest assured that no matter what we face, whether favorable or unfavorable, that God absolutely is working. He is present and His glory will shine bright in this world as, as He generation after generation is working out His sovereign and redemptive plan of salvation. That's what it's all about, right? Our lives us being placed on this earth, us being formed in our mother's womb before the foundation of the world, it's all for what? The glory of God. And so his glory will have its way no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, whether favorable or unfavorable, as we're going to see many of them this morning, God is at work and he is sovereign. He, is, he has a supreme authority over all these circumstances of life. So what's our big idea of our, our text this morning? The big idea is this. God is sovereign always, and His glory will be known both in the shame of ambitious sin and in the humility of simple obedience. The big idea this morning is God is sovereign always. That never ceases to stop. He is always, he's always sovereign. And his glory will be known both in the shame of ambitious sin and in the humility of simple obedience. Again, this morning, we have a stark contrast in chapter 14 of Genesis. We see the ambition of these four kings that will stand in direct opposition to what? Just the simple, faithful, and consistent obedience of Abram. His faith that he just, without hesitation, acts as Andy reminded us, he took action based off of what he knew to be true about his God. And that shaped his thinking. It shaped how he responded to circumstances that were presented to him. He had a core understanding that God is who he said he is. He is the creator of all things. And therefore, he's sovereign over them. Therefore, I can act. I can take a step of faith confidently knowing that he truly is in control. So this morning, we're going to look and observe four different aspects of God's sovereignty. Now look at just four just simple aspects of God's sovereignty. And by God's grace, we're going to make hopefully some, some points of relevant application along the way as well. But before we do that, let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Genesis chapter number 14, verse number 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedilaramar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Verse 2, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of, of Adma, Shemeber, king of Jeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedilaramor. 
But in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Kedalaramar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Seva, Carithium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to Anmisphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazamar, of Hazazan Tamar. Verse 8, Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Jeboiam and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidon with Kedalaramar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Verse 10, and now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living in the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he bought, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. The first aspect of God's sovereignty this morning that we'll observe is that God is sovereign when circumstances resemble chaos. God is sovereign when circumstances resemble chaos. We see this all the way through in this story of the four kings of the east and the five kings of the south coming together for war. So, uh, Troy, could you go ahead and uh, pull up that map for me? Let's see if we have to bail on. Yeah, it comes up. Okay. I don't know if you guys can see that. Okay. But I'm going to go ahead and read some of the historicity here of this. And uh, we'll, we'll just kind of breaking down the map here for you. So you see the solid red line is Abram's migration to Egypt and return to Canaan, right? That's, we saw that in previous chapters. The dotted red line is Abraham's route and battle with the enemy kings. All right, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so this is, when he hears of that, this is kind of the route that he took. And then the green dot here, or the green line, is going to be the path that the kings of the east, the four kings of the east would take as they came on their path of destruction and uh, conquering, all right? So just to give you some visualization there, um, and we'll kind of work through that. You see the Rephraim, the Zuim, Emim, the Horites. You see the Amalekites and the Amorites as they're kind of coming back up uh, into this area, and they're just wreaking havoc, okay? So let's go ahead and, and look at some of the, the details. So here we have in Genesis 14, we have our first war, right, that's represented in the history of mankind. Certainly there were some, some personal battles, there were some turf wars that were going on, but as far as a national war or battle between kingdoms, this is the first one that we have recorded here, right? So the first group or alliance of nations is commonly known as the four Mesopotamian kings of the east. We have Kedalaramar, king of Elam, which would represent geographically modern-day Iran. Okay, so this is the area that he specifically is coming around. And he presents himself as the dominant figure to this point. It's interesting if you're like me and like, man, I feel like we just kind of skipped a bunch of history that's not represented here in Scripture, which is, which is fine. But we don't have the benefit of really knowing how did he come into power? How did this alliance where these five kings of the south were really under the reign of these four kings of the east and specifically with Kedalaramar, how he presented himself as the overarching ruler of that day. Uh, we just, we don't have those details. But what we do know 
is that Shinar would have been the region of ancient Babylon. And we know that based off of our, our study out of Genesis chapter number what? 10? You guys remember that one? As we were going through that, we talked a lot about uh, the, the Shinar area as well as Babylon, ancient Babylon. So this leads us also to our second alliance that's represented here in chapter 14. This is made up of five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And apparently after 12 long years under the reign of the four eastern kings, the five southern kings attempted to what? Assert their own authority. They, God's word says they did what? They simply rebelled. Um, we don't exactly know how they exercised that rebellion, what exactly they did that was um, viewed as rebellion. But what we do know is that there now is a conflict between these five kings of the south and these four kings of the east. Again, we don't know why they decided to rebel, but there is some pretty heavy speculation that centers around a trade route that would have gone from the kings of the east all the way down to Egypt, right? This is commonly referred as the way of the kings. So you can kind of see the route that the eastern kings took. They would have kind of continued on all the way through there, right? And so we have this, this area of country, this land bridge that was controlled by these five southern kings. And so many people believe, based off of some of the history, that these five southern kings maybe would have had some type of tax to pay to these eastern kings or were giving a portion of their own um, trade to them. Uh, and at some point, it may have become overly oppressive to where they just had to take action and to get out from this oppressive reign. And so there is money, there is resources, there is commerce that is on the line here. And more people often think that that is the cause of the rebellion and both the response of the kings from the east. So what else do we know about these kings of the east? As we look at these details in these first 10 verses, they were very threatened by this rebellion. Why were they threatened by this rebellion? They were threatened, why? Because there was potential economic um, stability on the line. They couldn't ignore this rebellion. This would have, uh, this would have uh, had, had incredible devastation on their own stability as a kingdom. So they had to respond and they had to make a very punitive display of power. So chaos, complete disorder and confusion. The question is this, what is going on and how do we make sense of these details, these circumstances in light of the sovereignty of God? I don't know about you, but I might ask the question, has God lost control at this point? Are we slipping back into the, the pre-flood days where, man, we're just, we're falling off the rails and we've got just all kinds of murdering and genocide and rebellion and war? Uh, has, has God lost his grip on creation? No is the answer to that, but that's a question that could be asked as a result of this. Has he simply, is he not able to keep up with all the details and, and keep the nations at peace? Is this all on God's shoulders? Those questions are somewhat valid, but what do they fail to acknowledge? One key component in the equation of everything that's going on. We've got the kings of the east. We've got the kings of the south. But what are we forgetting here in all these details, this war, the struggle, the rebellion, that there is still a presence of what? Sin, right? Sin is still present in the world that we live in. We know in previous verses and chapters that because of Adam's sin, it's passed on, right, from generation. To generation, because of that, we were all shapen in iniquity. Uh, Psalm 51, verse number five tells us. So we have sin. It is, it is still present. It is still working in our flesh. And in the circumstances, as pride and arrogance and greed and selfishness continue to rise up as the heart of man is revealed in their sinful state. So although God is truly sovereign, 
And as we witness the free exercise of His supreme authority in executing and administrating His eternal purposes, we don't always clearly see and feel that sovereignty on a daily basis. Why? Because we still live in a broken world riddled by the sinfulness of mankind. So again, the the peace of the nations, it doesn't all fall on the shoulders of God. Why? Because mankind has sinned. And, and, And the face of the earth and the relationships of mankind are forever altered as a result of that sin. And so we see the fruit of that sin coming here in Genesis 14 as the nations of the world begin to war and to battle and to jockey for their own position and authority. So we don't always see, we don't feel that supreme authority in the grind of everyday life due to the presence of sin in a broken world. But if we slow down enough to just pray and observe, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we truly can see how some of the most chaotic and difficult circumstances of our life were being directed by God to change us, to shape us, to mold us, to make us into who He would have us to be, which is to be more like the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you give testimony to that in your own life? As you look at the circumstances of however, however old you are, looking back on, on years and even decades ago, you went through this trial, you went through that difficulty, you had this uh, type of loss, you experienced this type of pain and hurt and disappointment. But as you worked through those circumstances, God was faithful And out of the ashes, God made something beautiful and He made you stronger. He made you more resilient. He matured you in your faith and your knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you not give testimony to the fact that just although we go through difficult circumstances, doesn't mean that God has ceased to be who He is. We know that James chapter uh, number one tells us that we can count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials, because it's in those trials that God is making us to be more like his son, Jesus. Maybe it was a loss of a job. It was a loss of a loved one, a loss of a relationship or a spouse, a loss of, of health via a terminal or debilitating diagnosis. Is God there in the chaos of those circumstances? Have you ever asked? In the quietness of your own heart? In your own prayer closet, have you cried out to God and said, where are you? Have you forsaken your servant? Genesis 14 is crying out to remind us that God is sovereign, even in the chaos of of circumstances, in the chaos of a sin-riddled, broken world. God is there in the chaos of those circumstances. I see Allie here this morning, but Allie has a close friend. Her name is Emily Shelp. Some of you have heard a prayer request um, over the last few months concerning Emily. She's now, I think, going into at least a couple years, maybe beyond that, of a, a battle with, with cancer. Emily is a 30-year-old single young woman. Seemingly has her whole life ahead of her. battling aggressive cancer. And Emily says that God is there in those seasons of chaos, that complete disorder and confusion. She said in her latest post on a caring bridge, I'm continuing to trust and take things one day at a time and we'll try to update as the action plan forms. I am still praying and believing for the miracle of complete healing But I am also learning, get this, to see and be grateful for all the other smaller miracles along the way that are often easier to miss, including the grace and peace that gives me strength to continue to walk this path. She's recognizing God's sovereignty in the everyday minutia of life, even in the midst of facing insurmountable circumstances. 
God is using her in an incredible way. Her faith in Jesus is being exponentially magnified as a result of this trial in unique ways that more than likely would have never been possible had she not gone through this trial of cancer. This, friends, to the life and testimony of Emily Shelb right here in Kansas City, Missouri, this is what it looks like to truly live your life for the glory of God. Romans 14, verse number eight tells us, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So friends, how does this then shape my view of God? How does this shape my view of circumstances in my life? As born again believers, we clearly recognize that our life is not our own. So we no longer grasp and cling to it, hoping for the prosperity of the American dream to be realized in our life. But rather we hold our lives with an open hand and say, our father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, this is what it looks like to live in light of the sovereignty of God. When the circumstances around us seem like chaos, unless we slip into a woe is me snare of the devil, let us remember Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast, what? Our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So friends, God is sovereign when circumstances resemble chaos. These first 10 verses, we see nothing but chaos, sin, the effects of sin, confusion, uncertainty. But Genesis 14 stands to declare that despite chaos, God is there and he's working out his perfect plan that's going to continue to come more and more clear as we work our way through Genesis chapter number 14. So for the sake of time this morning, we're going to take our, I think we're going to take our final three additional aspects of sovereignty and we're going to just kind of boil them down in, into one um, hopefully cohesive set of commentary here. So the next three aspects of God's sovereignty is this. God is sovereign when the wicked seem to prosper. God is sovereign when the wicked seem to prosper. God is sovereign when deliverance is providentially delayed. And finally, God is sovereign whether restitution comes now or whether it comes later. Again, God is sovereign when the wicked seem to prosper. God is sovereign when deliverance is providentially delayed. And finally, God is sovereign whether restitution comes now or whether it comes later. So let's catch ourselves up in our passage. So the enemy, the kings of the east, seem to have taken care of business, don't they? I mean, it looks like, yeah, they accomplished their mission. They came down from the east, they went south, they followed that way of the kings, and then they said, you know what, we're going to take out all those giants, we're going to take out everybody who potentially could be a threat, and we're just going to go on this punitive declaration of supreme power. We're going to snuff out the current and any potential rebellion that could ever come, and we're going to set the record straight. This is what the kings of the east have set out to do, and it seems as if they have accomplished it. Right? Are you there with me? This rebellion has been quashed. The rightful order seems to have been established. Or the question is, has it? Is there a difference between perception and reality? 
That wasn't a rhetorical question. Is there a difference between perception and reality? Somebody help me. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate that. Lisa's with me. There is, right? There is a difference between perception and reality. One is based on what we think is happening, but is founded on limited knowledge. Reality is what is happening or will happen and is based on a holistic divine knowledge. The challenge that we have in our human state today is that we, find we are bound in our flesh with a, a finite mind. The prophet declares in Isaiah chapter 55 that his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways, declares the Lord. Our finite minds are often in conflict and catching up and lagging behind to the infinite thoughts and ways of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Somewhat frustrating sometimes, but yet we know that is best. Why? Because we have a good Father and He is sovereign and He is working out His perfect plan of redemption in just the perfect amount of time. So reality, again, is what is happening or will happen based on the holistic divine knowledge. We're bound in our flesh with a finite mind, meaning we are always operating from a state of limited knowledge. All right? Can you let that sit in for a moment? Just have a moment of humility. In our state as a human being, we are always operating from a state of limited knowledge. Which makes necessary what? Faith. Faith is needed because of our state as a human being in our finite minds and our limited knowledge. This challenging state that we find ourselves becomes a dangerous state when we allow ourselves to make authoritative conclusions about God, ourselves, and others based on that limited knowledge. Let me say that one more time. This limited state becomes a dangerous state when we allow ourselves to make authoritative conclusions about God, ourselves, and others based on that limited knowledge. So we're just reading these circumstances and we've stopped there at verses number 13 and 14 and 15, and we see these kings of the east coming, wreaking havoc, murdering, taking whole people groups out and establishing their authority in the world. We scratch our head and say, what's going on? Right? God, are you there? How could you make anything of this? Have you ever found yourself in your own personal life looking at the circumstances that you're facing? They seem insurmountable. They seem devastating. They seem as if you've been given a lethal blow in your life and there's confusion and uncertainty. Have you been there? What do we do with this limited knowledge? Am I going to act and make conclusions about God on my limited, based on my limited knowledge? Or am I going to run to the Lord in prayer on my knees in humility, run to the scriptures, seek guidance and wisdom from his word, and speak truth into my limited heart and my sinful heart, and allow that to recalibrate my view and my conclusions that I make about God and how I relate to him? So when we act on limited knowledge based in our finite state for our own purposes, this inevitably leads to inaccurate and misguided conclusions concerning the circumstances that we face. This is where the woe is me comes in. This is where we pull the victim card, right? This is when we hear, have you forsaken your servant, and we allow ourselves to spiral down the black hole of our own self-pity. So in our case here in chapter 14, the wicked seem to be prospering. They defeated all the current and potential adversaries. They've taken whatever they pleased and literally 
says at the end of verse 12, they went on their way. <laughs> it's like, yep, we did it. We'll, we'll be going along now. Have you ever raised your hand to God and attempted to assert your own sovereignty over a situation? You raise your hand and ask God if he's actually aware of what is going on. Are you seeing what I'm seeing, God? If, if I'm God, I'm stepping in right about now. That would be good, God, if you could just do that. Just like I think you should. If I could manipulate and control God into acting and, and thinking and engaging how I think I would, get this, it would be horribly inadequate. Because I don't know best. I have a limited knowledge in my finite mind. I am bound by a flesh and a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. So I don't know best. My way is not perfect. Only God's is. And sharing some of my notes and thoughts with the other elders, Dave Welch brought up Psalm number 73, which is a perfect psalm for this topic. We're not going to take the time uh, to read through that psalm. I'd encourage you to do so this afternoon. Um, write it down in your notes. Visit Psalm 73 and read and meditate. Uh, it's, it's a good, it's a phenomenal psalm. And it's interesting, Dave, as I last night picked that up at your suggestion and I read it. It's an interesting progression to that psalm. Um, he starts out with this great, bold, doctrinal statement of absolute truth. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Like, man, this is going to be a, just an incredible declaration of God's power and deliverance and might. But then the psalmist in the next verse, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He knows truth. He's attempting to believe truth, but he's wrestling with the circumstances that he's experiencing. I find that extremely relatable. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. But then he finishes. So he goes through literally verse after verse after verse after verse of the struggle, the difficulty of how he thought the Lord had forsaken him and how he's having this internal battle of, of trusting and doubting and trusting and doubting. Then he finishes with these very beautiful and familiar verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God is the strength of my heart. When we are walking in the Spirit and living our lives in light of the sovereignty of God, we understand that their prosperity, the wicked, is temporal. It's fleeting. And its origin is of this world, which we know from 1 John will pass away. As disciples in this broken world, we will endure suffering, persecution, ridicule, ridicule, defeat, and pain. Those things are not just a possibility. They are a sure reality. Why? Because this is how they treated the one who we are following. And he even said that in John 17. He prayed that the Father would keep them because of the persecution that he endured. And as a result, that his followers and his disciples would endure on his behalf. So friends, remember and take heart that when you see the wicked around you prospering and your heart is, is, is tempting you with words of doubt, ask yourselves the question, is that prosperity, the temporal, the fleeting, the, the, the prosperity that is an origin of this world, is it worth it? 
The Lord has not forsaken you. You don't deserve his grace, but yet he freely offers it. Remember that this world is not our home. As the song says, we are just passing through. We are pilgrims, aliens, outcasts, but we have a savior who will pursue us, who will hold us, who will keep us for his glory. And that no matter what this world will bring us, he will keep us. He will bring us safely home. No matter what the world, our flesh, or the devil will throw at us, it cannot pluck us out of the hand of God. And we have a sure reality that as the song we've been singing in the last few months, he will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. So the wicked are prospering. The word gets out. An escapee goes and tells Abram, and Abram takes immediate action. No hesitancy, no delay. He knows who he is. He knows who his God is. And he knows that there's nothing that he cannot do. The glory of God. The Lord is on his side. This is unbelievable. Just 318 men that Andy talked about. He defeats the four kings and their armies of the east. And we don't have any idea of, of what the numbers on the other side look like, unfortunately. Trust me, I looked. I, I, I did my best because I wanted this great dramatic ratio, right? But it just, it's not there. I guarantee you it's more than 318, right? We have one family household that has been expanded generation after generation. Abram now has 318 in his following. But we have four kings of the east and their armies. And God in his sovereignty and his providential plan empowers and emboldens and equips these 318 men to cleverly and carefully and clearly take out these armies. It's incredible. The power of God at display in and through the life of Abram. What is Abram's vocation at this point? What's that? Yeah, he's a nomad. But what, is, what is he doing with his time most of the day? He's a what? He's keeping over flocks of animals, right? He's primarily a shepherd, for lack of better words, right? A shepherd with 318 men taking down four kings of the east. God uses Abram to restore the injustices had been done. Wasn't right what these kings had done. Wasn't right what they had taken. God uses Abram to restore the injustices that had been done. The story certainly has a happy ending. We like happy endings, don't we? And next week, as we look into the latter portion of Genesis 14, we're going to observe Melchizedek and his blessing that he offers Abram and it will be even a continuation of this happy ending. But let's be honest, friends, as we look at the circumstances that the story could have ended very differently. Lot is delivered, rescued. Not just Lot, but there's a complete restitution. His possessions, the women, all the people are restored to the rightful place through the deliverance of, through Abram and, and his obedience. But let's be honest, not all stories are happy endings, are they? Circumstances of our life don't always work out like they did here. What do we do then? How should we respond? Where's God? Romans chapter 12 speaks to this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, my prayer this morning is that we've seen God's character in a new and potentially fresh light. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in a terrible season of difficult circumstances. But God, through the pages of Genesis 14, is reminding us that He has preserved His Word for us today and reminding us that God is truly sovereign. We can trust in His free exercise of His supreme authority and executing and administrating His eternal purposes. Why can we trust in that? Because we know that His eternal purposes are not some broad or ambiguous purposes. His purposes have names. And it's you and it's me. God's sovereign story of redemption continuing to unfold in our day. He truly is a good and sovereign God. That's the conclusion of this first portion of Genesis chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can trust you with our whole heart, whole mind, all of our strength. Even as we look at the chaos in chapter 14, we see that you are even giving us a picture of redemption through the life of Abram and seeking out Lot and bringing him, him back. I pray that as we continue to work through this series, that you would shape us and mold us and recalibrate our minds and our hearts and our faith ultimately to your word, that we would anchor it on your truth. And as a result of knowing and understanding your sovereignty, that our, our faith in you could be emboldened and infused with new life that may be wavering through the circumstances of today. So Father, I pray that you would be with our discussion time. Guide and direct it. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.